is uh, hi, I'm Jack Brody, and welcome to Living at the 45. And and I am so humble and so honored today to be speaking to Dick Gould. I wish I could say my friend Dick Gould, and I'm, I'm going to make him my friend. So I can say my friend Dick Gould, and um, I've known about him since I was a junior. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's, it's, it's a it's a bucket list for me, Dick. So, this <laughs> well, is, Jack, this you is are my time. friend. First of all, we know we and we met good. a long time ago. But yeah, that's right. Paths haven't crossed too much being in Southern California no. you and Northern just California. on the internet the last ten years, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And congrats on all you're doing. It's really been fun. Thank you. you and well, now that I got this, you. now that I got this interview with you, I feel bold enough to go after Roger. So I'm going to go after <laughs> Fed next. <laughs> that's a pretty big step up. <laughs> We're going to miss that guy. With um, Chris Andrews was my doubles partner. And then uh, Rich was just, I just, Rich, I just missed him in Kauai, in Kauai on vacation. He was uh, over there when I was. We were trying to get together and didn't work out. He had family all around. I had family there. So, uh, yeah, I know Rich all is doing world. really, he's doing really well up in NorCal. I know he's still, I think he's still working, right? No, he's kind of retired. He's down toward, down toward Carmel, uh, between Wattsville and Carmel, now living on the beach and place on the beach and really nice. So, Nice, nice, yeah. So anyway, so the weekend goes by. And so whose two books do I have to read? Okay, so you're ready for today. I have to read yours. And I did. And I have to read Barry Buses because yes. I, had an I had an interview with him a couple of hours ago. Oh, did ago. you? What a great book that is. I thought so too. Yeah, really. I, really, I thought- did a great job with that. What incredible honesty he had. I, the first thing I said to him, I said, you know what? Yeah. You're a better, I said, you're a better man than I am. I don't think I could have been, I don't think I would be that brutally honest about where I've been in my life. And he said, yeah, Oh, I had a tough, he had a tough time, you know, getting to that point. But that's what makes it so powerful. And I think that's why it's going to resonate so well, because he was able to come forward like that. And, and uh, then you really appreciate guys like Glenn always had a welcome arms for him and really. And then Greg Patton was amazing with him. And I was thinking him. of Greg this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Can't go any better than that. So, so those are the two books I'm reading. So, right, I'm back and I'm thrown back into the 70s with your book and Barry's book, right? And, and they come from two different places, right? Barry, you know, they, they say it's the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Barry's, you know, he had that 70s, but he had the worst of times in a lot of ways, yeah, you know, because yeah. 70s was a lot of sexual freedom, drug freedom, 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 freedom. But then, I read your book and it reminds me of my dad. And it was like in, things they don't even talk about today. Integrity, no excuses, you know, um, words you don't even hear anymore. Loyal. I don't know. You didn't put loyalty, but my dad used to talk about oh, loyalty. Well, gigantic. You know, trust. Trust. Thing. And yeah. so like, you know, it's so funny to go back. So my whole weekend, I'm thinking of my junior career, right? Because in the 70s, <laughs> I was playing in the 14s and the 16s. And I went to college, uh, you know, to play tennis first. Can't believe Jack. I missed your recruiting, Jack. Come on. I really fouled yeah, right. up. Listen, like I told Barry this morning, I was one of the guys, you know, he just had to step on to get to the semis. I was just one of those guys. Uh, but, you know, you have to have a few of me out there to make the tournament go. <laughs> yeah, of course, and, and me as well. <laughs> I as well. <laughs> so Monday comes and so I read these books. I mean, I'm going through some heavy. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm reading these two books about the 70s, thinking of my father who passed away many years ago. And 
and I'm, I'm living this life. I'm back in the seventies. I'm friendly with them. And I noticed that you, uh, you contribute to him as well. Uh, John Eagleton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they just got that sports at TV. That's a great website. I think they're doing a great job. I think they're going to be successful all the time and they're going to be successful. I I think there's no question about it. We work with them a little bit, providing some concussion. Uh, I work with concussion education a little bit and developing, helping develop that. And so we worked a little bit with providing them with some information on that. And, And so know most of those guys in there pretty well. John, of course, is a great player. Yeah. He was, and he's a great guy. You know, we talk maybe every couple of weeks and we just start rambling on and on and on. You know, (laughs) we talk about, you know, I tell him, he tells me about his great wins. I tell him about all the great guys I lost to, you know, (laughs) yeah. You and I I can write a book on that, Jack, the two of us. (laughs) Hey, I was, it's funny. I was telling Barry this morning because Barry's, you've read his book. So Barry's dad was tough, tough, tough. my dad was that same ilk you know that don Mm -hmm. rickles ilk you know you know what i'm talking about where you kind of sarcastically browbeat your kid but my dad did it in a more humorous way his dad was tough my dad would always yeah it must have been must have been more like an agassi thing but my dad was more like um he was a jokester so he we'd be at the swimming tennis club and you know, and people, oh, your son's so good. You know, when Connecticut, I looked like a big fish. And ah, he's all right. He says, I tell you, if you haven't beaten my son, you haven't played tennis. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let me ask you some questions because I read your book. And, um, you know, I have to tell you the, the honest truth. You know, I've known about you since I was in the boys' 16s because you're probably uh, where Barry's about eight years younger than me. You're about eight years older than me. And, um, so well, no, a little more than that, Jack. Um, I went. I went to. I went to Kauai on my 85th birthday to celebrate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you're older. But, than but me. thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. So maybe closer to 12 or 15 years. But <laughs> so. But still, we were all brought up in that 70s yeah. period. So we kind of all have a. We're all kind of in a way cut from the same cloth, because it was such an iconic era. You know what I mean? Between Battle of the Sexes and Stanford going from this rinky-dink school that would play. I remember when I was down there, I I played Kalamazoo in in 73, right? Got my ass kicked, of course, but I played it. And, um, you know, I remember your name and and I remember the guys at Foothill because I played with all the guys at Foothill and we practiced every day. And I remember you guys would have scrimmages against Stanford. And I'm thinking, I'll bet they don't do that anymore. But but well, I, I was too smart to schedule Foothill. What's that? I was too smart to schedule Foothill anymore when I came to Stanford. My hey, coach, my coach gave me a chance. My coach at Stanford scheduled us when I was coaching at Foothill. But uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't want any part of those teams. They were too good. Yeah, but I'm telling you, Foothill. Yeah, they were incredible for a junior college. Yeah. I mean, who did you have? You had like Stefan. Well, Stefanky wasn't that good then, but he got better. And then you had John Hubble, mm-hmm. Chris Andrews. Yeah, Tom Sheridan, my buddy, had all those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I Tom, I remember yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I got to the West Coast because of Chris Andrews. I, um, yes. I'm from Connecticut, and he and his family moved out to Connecticut. And we became doubles partners and best friends. And then uh, that was a super shame. I mean, he died so young. Oh, yes. I thought about him a lot this weekend. Yeah, that's that's really hard. Really hard. Yeah. He was literally my best friend. 
and uh, that was a tough one. Um, but yeah, I remember you from those days. And all I remember was everyone said the same thing about you. And, and when I read your book, it didn't really change my mind much. It was just, well, he really doesn't know that much about tennis and technique, technique, but he's a great guy. And everyone would say, but he's a hell of a recruiter. <laughs> he said, he knows how to get the best. He knows how to get the best players around him. And then I read it in your book. You said, well, I always just made sure to get the best players. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good way of going. And then I read, kept reading and I had no idea you really, you didn't play junior tennis, did you? I did. Oh, you did? Because I but saw I was you were, working in the you were a football coach. You know, I grew up on a farm and uh, my dad, my dad played football and wrestled a little bit at Stanford and, uh, and wasn't outstanding either one of them, but, but he and my mom are both athletes, didn't understand tennis at all. So I started, I did play, but I never played in the summers. I was always working in the summers. So and Tom Shearing in the same way, we never played in the summers. Oh, and really? We played a few tournaments in Southern Cal in the spring, the Dudley Cup and some of those tournaments that were been around for years. And yeah. And when school was out, out, then we were out of tennis till the next, till basketball season ended the next year. And so it was just as, and I finally got ranked my last year in the juniors. I played enough in the spring to get ranked. And wow. I was ranked 18th in Southern Cal or something like that. And so, believe me, I was in Stanford's five-star recruit when I went up there. I was going to say, it sounds like you're a little bit like me that way because I was good enough to be the top in New England. Yeah. You know, like my dad would say back in the day, like my dad would say, it's like being the heavyweight champ of Rhode Island. You right, know, right, <laughs> that's right. one of his other jokes about me. Um, but I, I, I always was sort of rubbing elbows. Like my doubles partner, Chris was a good player. I had another one, Lance Dennett, very good player. And then I coached, you know, who I've coached some players. So I've always been around greatness. It just wasn't me. I wasn't the great player. So it sounds like your career was somewhat similar where you really had great players. You coached better than you ever were. Oh, so, yes, for sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, no, I, it was really good. I, I finally had an opportunity when I went to college to play, you know, play all year long and playing with good players, you get better. And I had not had that opportunity before. And so that was a great experience for me. And by the end of my, I was there five years at Stanford getting my master's and I redshirted one year because of anatomy labs being every afternoon for a yeah. PE major. I remember. And, uh, so, so then uh, but my fifth year, I was pretty much caught up with those guys like Ed Atkinson, Owen Perry, like guys like that, but still that, that far away from them. But it was pretty good to, you know, I, I got I got to be okay anyway. So passable. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's how I always tell people. Yeah. My playing career, I, I was okay, but I call myself a journeyman, you know? Yeah. Of course. Basically, you know, which is why, yeah. Which it's why it's so interesting in this morning, uh, like I said, to talk to Barry first. It was such a. Yes. You know, it made me think of the same thing I always thought when I was a kid, which was, damn, why is it all the great players take it for granted? And the guys like me, I'd give my left arm to play like these guys. I would do anything to play like oh, these yeah. guys. You know how it felt when you were yeah, No, of course. Then you finally get up there where you're just about on a stage and you, you get ahead in a match and all of a sudden you get so tight. You start thinking about, gosh, if I win this, wow, wow, wow. And then you're dead. And so, yeah. Yeah, and I always and I watch guys like Hayes, you know, when I was younger, these guys were all my friends and mm -hmm. Mayotte, Chris, not Tim, but Chris Mayotte. I played yeah. dubs with him. I played some with him actually. We were good friends. Yeah, Chris nice and, guy. and Hayes yeah, and Ferdy Tagan. You remember Ferdy? Yeah, he course. played against Matt Mitchell and some of your guys. Yeah. 
And I was just like, well, you know, on match point, how come I'm always chipping my backhand? And they're, <laughs> and they're hitting out, <laughs> you know? And so, so it, it, it's, it's a really big deal, you know? And I guess that's one of my questions for you is how was it like dealing with these players? Um, I have so many questions, Dick. Dealing with these players who I think have that attitude. They take their greatness for granted. And, and a guy like you, from what I read, you're kind of like me. Enthusiasm, positivity, all that crap we learned from our parents in the 60s and 50s, <laughs> right? I mean, you don't even hear those words anymore. No, 50s, but, that was a great time for me, the 50s, for you, the 60s. Yeah, I was the 60s. Until late 60s. And the late 60s started to go away a little bit, so. That's right. That's right. And then, you know, and then now there's participation, you know. But back then it was, you know, you got to give it your all, son. You know, leave it all on the court. You know, just do the best you can, son. You know, that's all we ever heard. And, and your book was sort of like that. Uh, it was really like an old school, um, an old school book in, in a lot of ways. I was just like, well, gee, Everything he's talking about, these are like my father-son talks I would have with my dad. Mm -hmm. Son, I want to talk to you for a while. Okay, dad, what do you want to talk about? You know, I want to talk a handshake. You know, when you meet someone, look them in the eye, firm handshake. I mean, just, you know, stuff yeah. that they did back then that they don't even, they don't even talk about today. But you know what, Jack? I, I, think, I think that was one thing in, in doing this book. I certainly didn't do this book to say this is all I know because I didn't know what I any of these things. I was just trying things, being myself. And, but I, I think over that 40-year period that the book covers uh, players, that uh, the responses remain amazingly the same. And the players really, it, the book is really written by my players. I sent them yes, all it is. 20 questions and there were things, did we have a culture, which I didn't necessarily try to instill a certain culture. It was just my, my own personal values. But it wasn't something I tried to say, okay, this is what we have to do, and these are our rules, and this it didn't work that way for me. That wasn't how I was. And so um it it was more to to see these guys, hear these guys come back and answer these things. I was really impressed as an example. You mentioned loyalty and um the importance of trust, what these guys placed on trust, the trust in players and each other, maybe not best of friends, but but socially, but the trust they had that the other guy was going to do his best and prepare his best, the trust they had in the coach and the trust the coach had in them. And these things, uh, ego, dealing with egos has a little bit to do with trust too, because you don't have a good team unless you have a guy with a big ego. But on the other hand, how the ego molds into a team dynamic is critical. And I didn't make any conscience efforts to do, deal with that. Mm. Uh, but these guys all had comments on these things that were really revealing to me and to be able to incorporate these into a, a little bit of a flow for the book was quite an experience covering a 40-year period starting out when the Vietnam War was going on Martin Luther King was assassinated that's right, that's right. Uh, Robert Kennedy was nasty I mean everything was happening the world was going to hell and all of a sudden there was no such thing as an authoritarian figure you could wear your hair the length you wanted it you could dress how you wanted, or, you know, you could do your own thing. And that's when I started coaching. So all of a sudden the world was changed yeah. a lot and it was a very interesting time for me to coach. Yeah, there was a whole big thing back then. You just reminded me, um, even wore t-shirts when the t-shirts were getting pop, you know, popular, question authority. They don't say, remember that one? Question oh, authority. Do. That and was it, a it was big, hard that was a big coaches thing. Because they all came in after World War, world War II and most of them served in the military. 
And it was, yes, sir, yes, sir. And how fast should I hit that wall? And that's uh, right. And all of a sudden, uh, everyone was questioning that. And is this really what I want to do? And they were they were testing the person in authority. How much will he take? How much can I get away with? And so that that was a very interesting time to, to coach. And I learned a lot from that. Uh, one thing I learned early on, one of my guys from Southern Cal, you may have known Rob Ripner. Bree was his daughter. Who was sure, a good of player. course. Noah was a good player. His son. Great um, player. Great player. Yeah. And uh, but Rob was one of my first team, one of my first, first right. he, had, he had been admitted to Stanford. And then I was hired when my coach retired after he was admitted, but before he came to school. So my job was to be sure that he, he came. And, and John Spiegel was another great player from El Paso, Ronnie Kahn. They all came the same year and they were good, but not good enough to win a national championship. And I know that the first, one of the first lessons I learned when we were sitting on the steps of the courts waiting for practice to start. And uh, I said, guys, I really think we can win a national championship here. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And Rob said, he just said, coach, it's never going to happen here. We're, we're students and we don't care that much, frankly. Yeah, I read, I read that. Before open tennis, you know, so there's no future in it, really. Yeah, these guys cared about their and, grades. They cared about their grades. So, yeah, so <laughs> I learned right away. I mean, here I am with this big goal that no one could relate to. And the book really becomes one on leadership and whether it be a coach, we're all coaches, you know, you have your, you're coaching your kids every day, you're coaching your people at work one way or the other as, as peers or as uh, people working under you and or with you. So we're all coaching every day, but people don't realize it. And to have a goal that your team can't relate to is pretty ridiculous. It just doesn't happen. So that was one of the first things I learned. I better make my goal, tone it down a little bit. And, and it was a humbling experience for me, but yeah. a good, great learning experience early on. Yeah. That, um, I, I As I read your book, I was thinking back in the old days of, and I was talking to Barry this morning about that, uh, books like um, Inner Game, Tim, Tim Galway's book, and um, Zen of the Artist Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, I don't know if you know, but my coach played for your team. You remember Gary Groleman? Well, of course. Was Gary your coach? Yeah. Pardon me? Gary was your coach. In Atlanta, Georgia. He was my was coach. He, really? he first moved that time at Roscoe. Um, they were friends. I guess they were doubles partners. Well, and, they came uh, into school together. That's right. And so I was going to take a half a year off school. I went to play the watch tour down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the typical loss in the second, third round, just, you know, didn't do anything. Johan Crick won it that year. Uh-huh. And um, he was too good for us. I don't know what he was doing playing that series, but he did. And um, so Gary was my coach in Atlanta for about a year plus. And so that's, and that's how I learned more stories about you. But um, yeah, I, I always wondered um, other th- leadership was what I thought your book was about. I didn't really find it as a tennis book, really. Anymore. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. That it's not. A vehicle that I used to, to describe, but it turns out it turned out to be, and then it turned out to be a book on leadership. And and it's different because I'm not telling you, Jack. These are the ten keys to success as a leader, or these five things are the things to follow in order to be successful. These are all my players, what, what they thought looking back at the time there at Stanford, and it was pretty consistent throughout. 
uh, the things they value. And that, that surprised me a little bit. I thought there might be a pretty big change. But you know, your book just always brought me back uh, reading it. It just brought me back to what, like I said, what I always thought about you. All I ever heard was he's a great guy. You, you're a really great guy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this book is a testament to Dick's parents. That, that yeah. was my thought yeah. because no, I thought to myself, okay, he has these qualities, you know, many of which my dad would give me in my father son talks and, um, and, and, you know, he really lived them. You really lived them and it rubbed off on your team. And that's kind of what this book was to me. I thought to myself, this is not a tennis book. This is a leadership book. This is, you know, be a better, but this is more like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. It has nothing to do with motorcycle. It has nothing to do with motorcycles. Um, uh, Gary told me once that you made the guys read this book, and I never knew if it was true or not, but I think he told me, Psycho-Cybernetics. Was that you? Did you tell your team to read that book? No, we, we did a little bit of work with a company called CyberVision. Um, I remember them. And a little bit of visual uh, reinforcement of, of take. It's interesting because it was, you know, they're starting with uh, videotapes then and stuff, but most of them showed you what you did wrong where this whole emphasis was take your best shot yeah. and capture that or your weakest shot and capture it when you're doing it the best you can do it and use that to reinforce what you're learning rather than- I remember cyber, I remember it. So that was, that might've been what he was talking about. I don't think I required any books. It wasn't that one, but if it worked for Gary, that's great. By the way, Gary was an incredible coach in Georgia Tech. He was a great, did a great job there. Uh, if he'd stayed there another couple of years, he would have been really contending for the national championship with his teams. Yeah, he was a really great player. He reminded me of kind of Eddie Dibbs type. He wasn't yes. a big guy. He wasn't a big no. guy. He was short, actually, maybe mm -hmm. five foot ten or something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a good done in his heels. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you look at him and you wouldn't think, wow, what a player. You know, he, he wasn't. But so, very solid. Fundamentally, very, very solid. solid. Kind of yeah. like an Eddie Dibbs or a, a Haller. He reminded me like a Harold Solomon type, mm -hmm. the way he played. Yeah, a little flatter, but yes. A little flatter. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, so I know Gary well. And another guy I guess you worked with, I always thought he played for Trinity um, when Trinity was phenomenal. Um, and he was also my coach, but in the juniors. And he wasn't really a coach. He was a player, but he would give me lessons because we we're both from the same, same town. Uh, Paul Gherkin. Oh, yes. He, well, he, he, was, he, did, he came to Stanford one year. And Roscoe had signed, this is interesting, because he was my first well, Stanley Passerell is my first big recruit, and I really worked hard to try to get Stanley and Zan Gary, who had been admitted to both come at the same time. And Stanley's brother, Charlie, was a UCLA great player. And so Stanley was kind of leaning toward UCLA. Zan was maybe thinking all of a sudden away from Rice, maybe coming to Stanford. So those two guys went right down the wire, and Zan would say, one day, well, Stanley, I think I'm going to Stanford. I'll go if you go. And Stanley said, well, I'm probably going to UCLA. And the next day, Stanley called Zan and said, I think I'm going to Stanford. And so I'm bowing back and forth a couple of days, but never quite clicked. And Zan and Stanley called Zan finally and said, I'm going to go to Stanford. We're going to start to build something there. Zan said, I just sent a letter of attempt for Rice. And so Stanley came. The next year, Paul Gherkin came. Matt Claflin from down in Florida was a good player. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 Paul came and 
Freshmen couldn't play in our varsity that year. They could play in the NCAAs, but the Pac-8 conference, our conference, would not let them play on the varsity in the varsity. Why level. was he red? Was he redshirted? Uh, no, he he just he. You had, we had a freshman team that played Foothill College and oh right, that's right. good that's local right. schools and and but as a freshman team, and so he wasn't getting the the competition he needed. And then Roscoe originally signed a letter of intent to go to Tennessee, a conference letter of intent to go to University of Tennessee. He was from Chattanooga, right next door. And uh, so he it turned out he was not going to come. So then all of a sudden, Paul started thinking, "Gosh, my best friend's Bob McKinley." Who was a straight A student, by oh, the way. Oh boy, that's a lot. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Larry Gottfried or Brian Gottfried, excuse me, and uh, who am I forgetting? Dickie Stockton. They all. That was, Trin that was Trinity's Trinity. team. That, that was Trinity. And so Paul, they're good friends of Paul, and and Gary was coming in, but he was a year younger than Roscoe, and that's right. So he was, and so Paul didn't really know him that well. So Paul Roscoe wasn't going to come. Gary was a year younger. And so Paul said, Coach, I, you, we went the Nationals. We did a good job there. We took a, actually a close second to Trinity. But, but uh, Paul said, with all freshmen, four freshmen played in that tournament. Wow. And uh, Paul said, I just, I just got to go where my friends are and where the players are. And so I'm going to transfer to Trinity. I go, oh, geez. I finally got a guy. And uh, now he's leaving. So No kid. That's how that yeah, happened. So then he did play at Trinity. What I, you know, I know Paul and he was a very uh, soft-spoken, really nice, soft nice guy. Yeah, he wasn't your Yeah, he wasn't your typical tennis player. He was. Um, well, Bob McKinley was, I mean, that was a great group of people. They had at Trinity. Clarence had a great team. Poncho Walthall ended up at five or six. He was outstanding. They had. Eric they, Van Dillen. Didn't Eric, didn't Van Dillen play for them? No, he went to USC. Played doubles with Dan Smith at there USC. Was, there was Gottfried. Um, Paul Gergen, McKinley, right? Bob McKinley. Mm -hmm. Gee, I thought Stock, Eric Van Dillen did. Okay, Dickie Stock, Dickie Stockton. That was it, Dickie Stockton. Yeah. And who was in the split finals? And yeah, Trinity was unbelievable. They had a powerhouse back. Yeah, they really did. Uh, I think it's a mistake, though, for Paul because Stanford's a much better uh, education-wise, much better. Well, did, we did well down there, and and uh, you know who's to say that's it. He's just a good guy. I really was crestfallen when he left. You know, I have to ask a question probably no one else would ask you. Um, but after talking to Barry this morning, it brings up other things. And I, and I thought to myself, well, all right, let's, let's put yourself back there, Jack. So you're back in the late 60s, early 70s. You're 40 minutes, 30 minutes away from Haight-Ashbury. Berser you're you're tw 25 30 minutes away from berserkly that's what they used to call it and i'm like how did he keep his team from i think matt claflin probably lived up there <laughs> <laughs> how did you keep your team from temptation because or did you because what happened to barry i told barry i know a lot of players right i've coached a yeah. few it's not that unusual his story well, you know, you know I, don't, I don't think Stanford, everyone lives on campus. So it was pretty, people just didn't leave campus very much. I mean, they would go to the city once in a while. Mac would go up once in a while. Uh, but it wasn't the norm. And you had to have transportation and or take the train or it just, it wasn't that normal to go to the city. So yeah, that helped. Example. So that was, that was more the exception rather than the rule, frankly. Okay.
Okay. That makes sense to me. Cause like I said, I was practicing at Foothill in 72, 73, uh, those two summers. And uh, you're right. It was sort of kind of like Southern California. If you were on this side of the 805-5 split, you exactly. stayed on this side. And if you were on the other side, you stayed on the other side. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a lot of truth to that. Because there was so much going on when you started coaching in the late 60s. Yeah, and it was, all, yeah. it was all in your area. It was all in that Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco area. Yeah, a lot going on. Yeah. A lot going on. No, it was an interesting time to coach, believe me. And it was, uh, and I, I, I started out teaching at high school level. So I taught and coached in high school for a couple of years and then went to Foothill College for four before my coach at Stanford retired. So I had a couple of years of high school coaching and then four years of JC coaching, which I love. And then Stanford opened up and that was the one place I would have gone. So. Mm. Mm. But it's funny because I did. I started Larry's to thank in tennis. Johnny Hill started a lot of those guys in tennis. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Not not Larry. Uh, I started. I started Steve. Larry. Steve. I started Steve and uh, John. Then I had gone. By the time Larry came along, I was at Stanford and had left the club. I was working at it on the side. That's funny. That's how I got to Larry. I took a few lessons from his brother Steve. Steve's and then he's a said, great coach. He was a great coach. He helped me with my volley a lot. He had a great volley. Yes. And uh, he said, oh, you should play with my brother, my little brother. He says, you guys are the same age. And so we started playing. We became best friends. And yeah. so that was that back in those days. Uh, a hardworking group up there. Yes. Well, that, 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 old, that was a great family, too. They really. Uh, oh, yeah. Family. I taught his sister, started his sister, Megan, one of his sisters. And whole family, great family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gee, I have so many questions. I don't. Even, I haven't even looked at this yet, but I, I don't know where to go. Uh, I guess your most talented player had to be Mac or Roscoe or the two of them. Well, at the time, they... Roscoe was a breakthrough player. Uh, yeah, Roscoe. I'm so glad he had a chance to talk to him. He's you know, he's been through a lot, and he's just really a great person. And and um, did he know, reach out Roscoe, to you? I'm, did he reach oh, out yes. to you? Yeah. But Roscoe, Roscoe, the the glass. I think his greatness was really that the glass was never half full; it was always overflowing, and uh, and so he never really thought twice about anything. And I, I doubt he ever had any question about whether I was going to win a match. And uh, that that quiet was, but inner cockiness, if you wish, or confidence, really served him well. And um, I just I just thought that and it really set the attitude for our team. I think it really it really got us over the hump. It changed our attitude and changed our culture largely. Another fellow on the same team with Gary and Roscoe was a guy, local guy named Rick Fisher. Oh sure. And Rick Rick, he uh, was a great, brilliant player in his day. I well, remember you know, him. He, but not necessarily a great athlete, but really got a ton out of his game, and he ended up getting the NCAA semifinals and singles which to me was just amazing. And uh, he had a really good attitude also, really. And I'd, I'd go into a match with the SCUCLA saying, guys, last year it was 8-1, let's see if we can get two wins, you make it 7-2 or something. And they look at me like I was crazy. Coach, we're gonna kick their butts, you know? And here I was selling my team short. These guys had a lot more confidence in what they could do than I did, which was a big learning experience for me. And uh, I also learned at that time that I really wanted in my own mind, my own ego was such that I really wanted to prove that we could win a national championship because Stanford's a great location. 
and no reason that we couldn't be good. We just had to get something started. And uh, I, I, uh, I put a lot of pressure on my players. Would, guys, we win this match, then we're positioned to this, and we do this, we're going to do this and do this. And when we finally won our championship in 73, I felt I died and gone to heaven. I didn't care whether everyone another one. I'd, I'd done, I'd satisfied myself when I was trying to do it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we won again in 74. And it blew my mind and, and with a different team, actually. And uh, so I stopped talking about winning and expectations of winning to my team. And it changed, changed me as a coach. I became a much better coach because I didn't put much pressure like, guys, we got to win this match. This is an important, important, really important match, guys. Mm. You know, they get so tight, they couldn't hit a ball. So that to me was a big, a big evolution in my coaching. And I think as you read through the book, you'll see a, uh, time and time again where coach never talked about winning. He talked about getting better. And that really changed me and made me a much better coach. coach yeah, it was, more quality, about the quali- it was more about quality. Uh, improving and yeah. getting better and uh and not not getting better even by, by measure by wind but getting better by measure how you toss the ball in your serve or how you your back swing in your forehand your footwork on your backhand or your movement on your volley and uh our style of play was all always proactive it was always make it happen don't wait sit back and try to out rally someone just let's see what happens lay it on the line get to the net and that was our trademark and it really worked well but it wasn't natural for these guys at all and most of them were i think the only natural certain volleys all the volleys i had really were uh, who were good at were sandy mayer and jimmy graham excuse me the rest what about what about roscoe he was all serve well he was all serve and that great first serve set up some pretty easy volleys, but guys finally learned just wait that first serve out until halfway through the second set, he got a little tired, a little tight, and then they climb on a second serve. And all of a sudden his volley was exposed. Was exposed. So we would go through practice day after day in practice where I'd only give him one serve. So he learned to make that better and have a little tougher volley to hit. And um, he became a better volleyer because of that, I think. How often did you go in and Really, because I could be, I guess I am wrong. Like I said, all I ever heard was great recruiter, fantastic guy. How often did you go in and change and, and work on technique? Did you do that much? I mean, especially in the end, I didn't you do had much so many good players. I didn't do much with grips. I didn't do a very good job with grips because they were all over the map. Uh, especially with the Western started years, coming yeah, through towards the end of your career, I would guess. All of a sudden, guys started coming over the ball with his. Right, and that of course changed the whole path of swing and everything else. And uh, I was much more, much more linear, and now everything's rotational. And I was much more on hitting through the ball and getting around the outside of the ball and on your volleys and your ground strokes. Uh, I really put a lot of value to kick serve because it can be really helpful for serve volley. So I wanted most of my guys to be able to hit a kick serve. I really, I think the biggest single thing was style of play. Because most of these kids in those days had pretty good volleys to net, but they hadn't got into their growth spurt yet, so they hadn't really used it in matches. And the good part about college tennis is, from a teaching standpoint, is you can talk to players while they're playing a match. Right. And so I could, I, I, I knew Jack what you could do in practice. I saw you do it. I could see you do it, and I knew when you're ready to do it in a match. But if I asked you to do it in a match before the match started, and it got to be match point against you or deuce in the third set at five all 
you wouldn't do it. You go back to your comfort zone. But coaching the match, I could insist you do it. Tell you where to serve it, where to volley it, behind it, die, play them down the middle, whatever. And and then it was my mistake if it didn't work. It wasn't the the onus was on you as a player. So it took a lot of pressure on the player, and and that's where these guys then could learn it. And as a style of play, it worked beautifully. And we really, I think, you know, attacking the second serve return was a daily part of practice. Um, in doubles, we've forgotten the word lob, how to spell it. Uh, we used to work a lot in staying back and working the point in doubles with a lot of lob drive, lob drive exchanges. I never saw anyone else practice that like we did, but we we uh, we worked a lot in style of play. Um, and I didn't do very much with grips, which in turn influenced the swing a lot, but footwork was gigantic for me. But again, it was linear footwork, not setting up a rotational stance. So yeah. Yeah, so it was more kind of like your book. It sounds a little more strategic and motivational than technical. Plus size, by the time these guys got to you, their games have to be pretty well stamped in stone. Yeah, but then what, but but like I say, only two of them were serving volleyers. And when they left there, almost all of them were. Well, that was a style of play back then, sure. And, uh, but that that was at college age, that's when you're 17, 18 years old, when you're finally strong enough and big enough to do it, you just need someone getting you over the hump and helping you to do it and encouraging you to do it and making it a part to make it a part of your game. And so that was, I think that's probably for most of them, the biggest contribution I made. The game has changed so much today, huh? Nobody goes Yeah, it to has. That. And, and uh, I made my living with, with aggressive tennis. Don't, don't wait for it to happen. Make it happen. And then put it all in line, see what happens. I thought, I think that's not, that style of play is also very good for playing under pressure because instead of waiting for the guy to lose or wondering what to do, you have a game plan. You're going to put pressure on the guy and how do you best going to do it? And you're going to play behind him or open to a quarter. And that became really important. And, and uh, I think that was really our trademark as a team. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I before I talked to Roscoe a few weeks ago, I, um, you know, he didn't have a book. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go back. And I watched the fifth set of uh, he and Borg yeah. at Wimbledon. And uh, I, I didn't remember it the way I saw it. I, I couldn't believe how much even Borg, I thought Borg was like Nadal, you know, because he had the Western grip and the first real two-hander. I was like, he could he's in net. He was yeah, in net all the time. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I mean, they were both <laughs> in net all the time. And I thought, wow, the game has changed more than I thought because I thought Borg was the first Agassi or Nadal, whatever you want to call it, the first Westerner. And I just thought, and I was so wrong. He was at net all the time. And he was successful up there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, but that's how I did my homework to talk to him. <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty neat. Um, it's funny, most of these podcasts, not most of them, that's not true, but a lot of them, I'm just talking to guys from this era. Because this yeah. is the uh, gold. I thought this was the golden age, but honestly, now that I've you know packed in a big life, um, golden age has to be Roger, Rafa, and oh, and incredible! It I has mean, to how be. How lucky are we to have been alive in this? I life. say that all the time. We're so blessed. And think back though to the late fifties and sixties with the labor and labor Bowles, and Rosewall Wall and I mean Stolly, Stolly, Stolly. That was all Australia and a little bit of us America, but. For that time, the players that Harry Hopman was working with were incredible. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I guess we always think it's the golden era because we're living it, but uh well this this I, was this was exceptional though. It I just, think it uh, was. Top, I'm not sure if you're gonna I'm not gonna sure if you're gonna have three guys win 60 grand slams plus. I just don't think yeah. that's gonna happen for a while. I would I totally agree. Yeah, what do you think of the new guys, Sinner Alcarez? They're my two, they're my two horses I pick. Well, yeah, I think yeah, they, they're they're pretty good, but I don't think you don't don't sell a Merkin short. They're not far behind them. Taylor Fritz looks uh, good. TFO looks good. And they just played each other in the finals of uh, Tokyo. I mean, it's a pretty That's big right. tournament. Taylor just edged him out. Took a couple of tiebreakers. Yeah, six and I six. Saw that. I saw that. Um, there's no way I'm going to be able to talk. You have to give me another day to talk with you, by the way, because <laughs> there's no way I can get on. And, and it's not even for my audience. It's not for you folks out there. This is for me. I need to find out more stuff. I, I've, I've lived my life in tennis and written a few books and coached some players, but this is a talk I've always wanted to have. So let me fire another couple of questions at you. Let's go. Um, all right. So one of my students, so I, one thing I like to do is I like to, um, I don't know, I like to include my students on my life a little. So I talked to some of my virtual students. I have one in La Jolla and he's got a kid just turned five years old. I've been coaching him virtually and he's been using my, he's been using my boards and all my wacky uh, inventions. And so this kid's just turned five. He's a beast. He's really something. And the father played D1 tennis. Mm -hmm. And um, they met me through Warren Wood. I don't know. You, you ever heard of Warren Wood? I don't think so. Nah, he won the NCAA's D3. But still, good player. Good oh, player. yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's on tour right now, actually. He's, I think he just picked up his first ATP point. He had, right. to go to, he had to go to Africa to do it. Uh, but <laughs> that's, what you gotta, that's what you got to do nowadays. You, it's hard to get it here. Oh, you're not. It's, no kidding. It's Pop. so hard. Yeah. You really have to go abroad to get your points. Um, well, and you start that at a young age, and, and the problem is it pulls the kids out of the junior tournaments. You don't go to a junior tournament now. It used to be everyone played the same. Everyone played St. Louis. Everyone played Springfield. Everyone played Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. Still play Kalamazoo, but but otherwise they don't even see each other. They're playing the and Bur Burlingame ITF juniors and Burlingame had a big one. Burlingame National Art Court, Saturday State right. Championship, uh, Cal State. Before that, everyone came to those two tournaments, and then. It just it just changed because I mean the rankings now how do you they aren't they don't mean much because guys but first of all guys started playing out of their age group they started playing up they win a tournament and say oh I'm ready to go up now but sure. then they don't learn how to play to they play not to lose and they protect themselves so I don't think that's a great move and, I don't either I don't unless you're that far above your group I don't think it's a good and move and then of course you have the choices not just in the United States but you go chase the ITF junior tournaments to get in. To Wimbledon, Junior Wimbledon, Junior French, whereas it used to be United States got so many slots, someone else got so many slots, the national team got into them. So that that's changed the whole thing a lot now. So I didn't know that. And you, you know, you just, you're not playing the same guys all the time. I used to. It used to be a lot different. You play, we'd play each other till we're sick of sick of each other five times a year. That's right. Semis, something like that. Well, pretty soon one of us gets a little better, and now you just don't even see each other the same very often. Is that right? No, I didn't know that. I, 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 you're right, because Barry talked this, we, we chatted this morning, talked about how he met Witzkin every tournament. Yeah, yes. He said, it's like we had a magnet for each other. <laughs> um, so my question, or my student's question, the father, 
he wanted to know, you know, he, you know, is he pushing his kid too hard? What do you think of teaching a five-year-old and uh, having him play, you know, four times a week? And he, he just wanted your opinion on that. So I, I want to include him and ask that question for in his stead. What do you think about starting young? Uh, I mean, other than the fact you might burn a kid out. Well, I started when I was 11. Uh, started with, ten, with ten. wood rackets. That's about as early as you could start. If you started any younger than that, you definitely had two hands, you know, yeah. because you couldn't hold a racket in one hand on the backhand side. And uh, nine was about as young as I'd take a pupil when I started teaching. It was very seldom would it take someone younger than nine. They could get by barely. Um, but that's too late now if you want to be really good, perhaps. On the other hand, you know, as a parent, let's, that's the best way to look at it. Uh, I started my own kids. And again, this was earlier when the rackets were heavier and the courts were bigger and you had soft balls. But I started and that would change now because I would start them earlier. But I would, uh, I would say probably I started my kids because I was a coach. I started when they were about nine. Uh, I'd start my daughter teaching her Girl Scout troop all in a group lesson, something like that. So her friends were doing it as well. Um, but much younger than that, I, I didn't really go. Uh, and I think it's, I think you gotta be careful because there's nothing, if I had a, my, my five-year-old kid today, I would expose to a lot of things. That's my responsibility as a parent, something in the arts, something in music, something in athletics, maybe a couple things in athletics, being a coach. Um, but to try to make that thing their one their one thing, I'd be very careful of personally. I would rather expose them to a smorgasbord of things in different areas hmm. and just see where their in interests develop. I had, uh, my oldest daughter was a, a very good tennis player. My second daughter was pretty good. My third and fourth kids were swimmers and, and very good swimmers. My fifth kid was a volleyball player and a dancer in college at uh, captains of their teams in college. Stanford, mm. UCLA, Harvard, just uh, or Stanford, and Harvard. So they all did different things that they, they took to. Uh. And I think that that's important that they're doing what they, you know, the other part too, and not so much with tennis, but in other sports is that they're all these club teams now. So you're season, there are no, no such thing as seasonal sport. The same muscles are getting used over and over and over again because you finish your middle school volleyball season and then if you're good enough, there's a club season. And that goes the other nine months of the year. So you're playing all year long. And I think we have to be careful in tennis. We don't get into that rut. It's just, I think it's really important to have some time off a different season. I played a little bit of football in the fall for up till halfway through high school. I played basketball all the way through high school. Not very good, but I played it being a team. A team sport's a little different than an individual sport like tennis. Um, and to me, it's very valuable. And I really relish those experiences. So I, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with playing at five years old. Um, but I think that how you set, how you, how you shape the goals is important. I think that uh, I've always believed in stepping stone goals. Um, not, and most of those centered around improvement. Let's do this to you. Let's hit. 10 points of court, then we'll go to this and do 20. Then we'll go to 30 or 40 rather than, and uh, rather than 
you know, you can't be champion of city to champion your block. Right. You know, once you're champion of the city, there's another step, but let's do one thing at a time and not put something way out there. And sure, that may, that's going to keep some of these kids from being great, maybe because Venus and Serena are going to be the number one players in the world before they're out of the womb, as an example. Yeah. And how exceptional that is. And because they were pretty well rounded, too. There's a lot of parents, that, a lot of credit to their parents. But uh, that's a that's a big gamble, and I I would want not want my kid to go through that and experience the frustration of not feeling worth worth to, to feeling worthless, perhaps if they're not reaching the goals that tend to come along with starting one sport or one activity too soon in life, whether it be dance, gymnastics, whatever it might be. So it's a there's a, there are inherent dangers there. Fortney's working with you, and you can see the big picture a lot better. So you can help caution a dad about getting too carried away with that. Um, yeah, I try to make sure tennis isn't what it was for me as a junior, which was a beast of burden. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't have that because my parents didn't play, which is good. I can, my first tournament in another Southern Cal I in Ventura, so I was driving an hour at every tournament. My mom drove me to my first tournament. I got one game, and it was given to me by a guy, a nice guy, I like him, <laughs> gave me a game. And all the way home in a car, my person who didn't really play tennis, I kept hearing about, well, you should have done this. Why didn't you do this? And that was the last time I ever watched me play, ever, college, whatever. Wow. I didn't want to ever go through that again, you know. So How funny. I, I didn't think, I thought I was the only one. My first tournament, I lost 0-1 to McEnroe's doubles partner, a guy named, um, what's his name? Peter Fleming, no. Gary, Gary Reiner. Oh, Yes. This is the boys 12 and unders my first tournament. He beat me 0 and 1, beat me like a drum. But he was a nice it, it was shocking because um you know um well you used to know more than anyone. Um, you had Mayor, you had all these guys and I know their person. I know Mayor. I sold them a bunch of eight boards. Um we got on the court together a few times. So I know him. So you had a lot of let's just call them personalities. And um I was shocked that this guy, Gary Reiner, at 12 years old, he was much taller than me and much more mature. He yeah. said to me, he goes, he said, after he beat me 0-1, he goes, is this your first tournament? I said, yeah. He goes, don't worry, you're going to be a good player. Boy, I mean, it's so rare. I found out yeah. 10 years later, it's so rare to have a nice guy who's a great player. I mean, and of all people, McEnroe's doubles partner, because McEnroe's not the type who would say, hey, kid, you're going to be a good player, okay? I mean, I'm not going to say anything disparaging, but he's just not that type. But his doubles partner, I couldn't believe it. He actually said those words to me, and I'll never forget it. And I thought, gee, what a nice thing to say, you know? And uh, that was, I guess, leads me to my next question. I know the guys on your team. Uh, notwithstanding Paul Gherkin, who's quiet and probably easy to deal with, is, he must have been the easiest to deal with. You had big personalities on that team. And I don't mean just McEnroe. I, I, and Mayer was a big personality. And they can be huge ego. They can be very abrasive. Uh, I know because I know these guys. And, um, and how did you tiptoe around that or was it just my way or the highway type of coaching? I mean, no, how did you get, not, how did you get these the guys highway. not to kill each other is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I very interesting. Yeah, one of those teams had six guys later were in the top hundred in the world, which, you know, not that many Americans in the top hundred anymore, let alone. No, 
no. and uh, college players. And and uh, again, ego is important to belief in to belief in yourself. And these guys were good because they were instilled a belief in themselves, uh, rightfully or wrongfully. I mean, a lot of people, you're the best thing in this earth, and they're not, but they believe that. If they believe that, that's a big step. Well, they did. They did. I was and, a junior. Uh, they did. <laughs> uh, Billy Mays said it was on on one of those teams with Mac and Matt Mitchell and and that Perry was Wright, great Perry Wright. That was a great team. And then guys great fighting team. for number six, John Rass was on that team, St. Louis. And guys fighting for number six, like Lloyd Bourne and and uh, Peter Renner, became both of them top hundred in the world. And Jim Hodges, that was a great team, great Eagles. And um, Billy Mays had an interesting quote in a book. We were talking, there was a part on it, there emerged to be a section on egos because of these guys' responses to some of these questions. And and you have to have an ego. You have to believe in yourself. But how you manifest that in a team situation can be destroy the team or make the team better. And Billy was talking about myself. He said, you never push back. He said, uh, it's like you had no ego. So when we tried to rupture it, it didn't do us any good, basically. And uh, because there was nothing there to, to push back on. And I, I never thought of it that way. But, you know, guys would tell me to go F off and practice something yep. like that and yep. just let it roll off me, you know. For all I knew, that was part of it. And, um, and come back the next day or just give the guys some space for a few minutes and it seemed to work out pretty well. And, and the guys really ended up believing in themselves and pulling together. Mac was a great team player, by the way. Really? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. He was probably one of the best team players I ever had. I didn't know this because I gave him the fall off and we didn't have any matches in the fall then anyway. And he had, he started playing in the spring for tournaments with Bill Reardon in a circuit he had back in the East of the time when he was in high school senior in high school, and then he played all summer, and, and he did well, and he never stopped playing, and uh, I knew he wasn't a practice, usually, in, usually you get better repetition, repeating something over and over and over again, that used to be the standard philosophy, and until it became second nature, well, Mac couldn't do something over and over and over again without destroying himself, this native artistry, artistry, and so fortunately, I was smart enough not to get involved with that. But in so doing, I gave him the fall off because that's when we did that kind of thing. And it gave him a rest and a break. So he was fresh in the spring. But my first chance in seeing him in a tournament was in Madison, Wisconsin, in early Feb- mid-February at the National Team Indoors. And he was the Remember first guy on the court to console a teammate who lost, congratulate a teammate who won. He was a great team player. And you think about it. No matter how tired he was, whether he was hurt a little bit or not, never made a difference. If he was asked to play Davis Cup, he always played. Always played. Never turned it down. Very, very loyal and uh, that way. And very loyal anyway. And uh, that surprised a lot of people. But that's very true. That's really interesting. I, I've played uh, on a court next to him many times over at uh, Port Washington in the juniors. Mm-hmm. And then just a few years ago, I was coaching a boy in New York City. And he was over at Randall's Island, I think uh, that's what it's called. And yes, I, I would never have picked that up because he always, even in the juniors, always seemed a little sullen and uh, curt, somewhat curt. Well, yeah, and, and he's always looking for, he would release the energy and the hyperness of, of his personality by 
taking it out on someone else. And that was just what he did. Ironically, he didn't come from tennis parents. His mom and dad didn't. No. Stay and they just sent him next door because Port Washington was right next door to where he lived. He could walk there and learn how to play tennis. It's a parent's duty to expose your kids to something. And first of all, and all of a sudden he's doing great. But when you see him in a team situation, different uh, man, our guys and girls team really respected him for, huh. for what he gave to the team and what he brought to the team. And, and uh, it was, it was, a, it could have been a disastrous year. We won the championship that year. I'm on a court. I don't, know, I don't know what the last match was. I forget, but I was in the stadium in Georgia and we won the, won the tournament. Usually you're jumping up and down. I just put a towel over my head tried to shut the noise out, took a great big breath and just said, thank God we didn't self-destruct because we weren't clearly the best team. We had some real battles with UCLA, Elliott Telcher and company in those days. And we weren't clearly better than they were. We were good, but we ended up undefeated. And, and uh, it was an amazing year to get through. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And our best, our, Biggest opponent could have been ourselves, but the guys stayed together really, really well in spite of their individual characteristics. And it was an amazing year. I'm going to stay with this question. Did you ever have to pull guys like Sandy Mayer and John McEnroe and people like that, you know, and they do have big egos. Did you have to pull them off each other ever? I mean, because I can see... Um, Tennis well, players are funny. Saying, they're they're saying, funny. They're either socially awkward or they're just too obnoxiously cocky. And I'm wondering how you kept the, the cohesion and, and yeah. you know, everyone. Well, John and Sandy didn't overlap. It would be it would be Sandy and Roscoe. And that's Roscoe, right. Sandy's older. That's right. Yeah, uh, Roscoe's older than Ro or a year older than Sandy, and Sandy's older right. than John. But um, it was really interesting because. Sandy, by the time Roscoe was a junior, and he and Sandy both got the NCAA semifinals, and they both lost to Trinity. If they both won those matches, we would have won against Stockton and won against Godfrey, uh, respectively. Then we would have tied for the championship against Trinity, which is who was really good at the time. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't. But by the end of the year, Sandy was at least as good as Roscoe. And I, I know Sandy wanted a chance to play ahead of him, but I just didn't want to rock the boat. Roscoe brought started to change the program's attitude, change his culture. I felt loyalty to him. Roscoe turned pro after that um, match. And uh, I thought, oh my God, here we go. We're never going to win it now. Uh, we finished second to Trinity that year. We're never going to win it now. But then Sandy stepped up at number one and he won it, the singles the next year. So we won the tournament. So uh, they, if, if Roscoe had come back that year, I had a problem. It was going to be one, you know, I'd have to start the year fresh. And, and really, uh, Sandy was probably playing as well toward the end of the year as Roscoe was. I could have flipped him in the lineup easily. Hmm. Fast forward 20 years from McEnroe's undefeated season to 1998, as opposed to 1978. My team then is uh, the Bryan brothers. Paul Goldstein, who had won three straight Kalamazoo's. Yeah, sure. And, He's a coach uh, now, I think, right? Yes, he is. Yeah. And Ryan Walters, who had won the All-American Tournament. I mean, it was a great team. And then at number five and six were Jeff Abrams, who had won the National Championship in the 14s, I believe. And Alex Kim, who won the NCAAs two years later. So that was a great team. 
And it was just as a competitive team with Matt Mitchell, who's defending champion, but McEnroe played one after some challenge matches. Billy sure. Mays. Billy Mays. Sure. Matched in the juniors a year apart in Northern California, but a big rivalry between the two of them were fighting for the number two spot. And Perry Wright ended the year ranked number 12 in college tennis that year. He was number four. And so who's going to play one? And we survived uh, round robin challenge matches and ended up Mac, um, uh, Billy, Matt, and Perry, or Perry and Bill, uh, Perry and then Matt, actually. And then uh, fast forward to 20 years later to another undefeated team, of which I only had three. Those were two of them, 78 and 98. And I said, well, guys, we got a lineup. We got to set for the indoor championship. Uh, how do you want to do it? We're sitting on the court talking about it. And I said, um, and, and as an example, Mike Bryan said, well, Brian Walters won the All-American tournament this fall. He should be number one. And Ryan said, well, Bob Bryan won Kalamazoo or whatever. He should be number one. And then Bob spoke up and said, well, what about Paul? He won three straight Kalamazoo's, had a great year last year. And Paul said something about, well, Mike's playing better than anyone right now. He should be one. I mean, they all are voting for someone else. I wow, said, that's unbelievable. So, coach, you decide. So I uh, went in the office with John Whittinger, my assistant at the time, and we sat down and said, how many matches do we have, John? He said, well, we have 24. I said, bingo. So let's play everyone at number one an equal number of times. They must play two, they must play three, they must play four. So they played six times at one, six times at two, six times at three, six times at four. And we're gonna tomorrow at practice, make it out, make out a schedule. So they know tomorrow, this is February, who's gonna play first on May 5th when we play Pepperdine? Who's gonna play one, two, three, four, and five and six? And we made out a schedule, gave it to them the next day and told them, well, guys, if we do this, Invariably, it's going to be your time to play one. The guy's getting assigned to play four that day or that weekend is going to be playing better than you are. But can you stick? Can you handle that? Can you stay together as a team and doing that? Oh yeah, we can do that, coach. And they did, and they lost two matches in singles all year long combined. All six guys, unbelievable. That's amazing. <laughs> they they, long, it's amazing that they weren't fighting to play to be number one. They were pushing they had, the other guy. Totally, totally different kind of team. Very selfless. Amazing. Whereas the McEnroe team, there are a lot of big egos in that team. Well, there was another team too, but they're different, different kind of ego. I don't know. Well, I know but the Bryan brothers pretty well. Um, uh, we've really crossed paths a lot and they endorsed my, you know, they're really nice guys, really nice guys. And I can see it. Yeah. What's that? I'll see them Saturday. I'll tell them a little for you. Yeah. I'll they really... Saturday after I'll tell them a little for you too. <laughs> Good. Um, well, they really, um, no, I, I like those guys, but they're, um, yeah, they're different than the Max and, and the Sandy Mayers and even Gene Mayer. They're, they're, they're different. They were always kind of mellow, almost surfer type guys. I felt like when I, you know, play, I played with Mike for an hour one day and just seemed like such a regular guy. And, well, and, they're and you, you have to appreciate the parents, Wayne and Kathy. Kathy was a top 20. I don't know Kathy. She was top 20 in the world. And she oh, was no, good at SC. And then uh, Wayne was number one when we played Santa Barbara. My first years of coaching, he was played number one for UC Santa Barbara. And oh, really? I, did he, did, was Greg Patton, um, 
coaching then at, no, at Bar no, Santa Barbara? About Wayne's age, actually. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, he was a lot younger, but uh, but no, it was it was pretty interesting. It just, uh, I mean, the family they had no TV in their home. Uh, they uh, were brought up with music and tennis, and just really were well rounded and really had were impressed. Their studies were really impressed upon them. Paul Goldstein's folks aren't really tennis parents, uh, parents at all. Ryan Walters' folks didn't play necessarily play tennis uh, very much. They weren't really tennis players, but parents, but uh, really supportive parents in all cases. Huh? No, I don't. I didn't didn't know that the mother even played. I, I everyone knows Wayne because Wayne sort of took control when they started, you know, becoming number one in the world in doubles. Uh, you know, so you saw a lot of Wayne. Yeah, uh, but I I never knew the mother was a great player. Yes, no, she was outstanding. Well, you can tell. I mean, like I said, when I read your book, I, I couldn't help but go right to your parents. Really weird, huh? I just thought to myself, well, gee, you know, the guy's, you know, got heart and he instills that in other people and he's courteous and respectful and just kind of all those old fashioned. Well, my dad hates to say the old fashioned terms, but they are old fashioned you know, terms. They never sat me down and said, this is what we expect or anything. We just, led by example myself we just by example exactly you know um another thing that was interesting about your era of tennis um it's so different from today you didn't have not only didn't you have a ton of foreigners so many of your players came from your backyard i mean the mayors lived yeah. up there they live there in palo alto i think or i know i, I played well, Gene they, they did in, the time in new jersey at the time but their oh, dad, really? I, learned, I learned a lot from their dad, Alex Senior. He was a yeah. outstanding coach, really interesting. Yes, he, I, I had heard that. Really was good. He come out every spring and work with him for the week we had for spring practice, and and uh, I just as close to his court was working with the boys as I could because he was really, really good. Learned a ton from him. You had a, some good coaches in NorCal. You had Stefanki was a good coach. Yeah. Another guy, I'm trying to remember what was his name. They used to tease him. Hank Carter, Nick Carter, Nick, Nick, Car Carter. Nick Carter, Nick Carter. Yeah, Nick, Nick and I were at rival clubs when I was just, when I was a teaching pro at, and coaching high school in JC. And we both, I think I had 20 or 25 ranking kids. I started from scratch at the club and he had like 25 or 30. And we were in our clubs were five, probably three miles apart. And we would play ourselves. We play, we play every week, at least once. Is that week. right? Yeah. Great yes, because I met him when I was up here in that summer of 73. Yeah. Uh, he coached some good players. Oh, he did some really good players. And, I think he coached Gene, I think he coached Gene Mayer, if I'm not mistaken. I don't I don't think so. Uh, no. I would be surprised. Gene never spent time in Northern California, other ones at Stanford. Oh, that was a good point. I didn't mind if they went to someone else. A lot of my guys go, my later guys like Jared Palmer would go take lessons from Jeff Aaron who played for me, who was a pro in the area. So my early guys would go take from Nick, but at the same time, you know, I started, I started the Tefankis, I started Nick Saviano. Oh, uh, Nick, you did really? Uh. You know, first lesson, you ball boy in my yard, my court all day long, and I give him a lesson at the end of the day. <laughs> he was at the top of the heap, I'll tell you. Yeah. No, he was, he, no, he was, that, that goes back a long time, but. He and Butch Waltz. Yeah. Yeah, but we had a lot of you, but you're right. We had a lot of good areas and a lot of good players in the area and some other good coaches as well. But uh, I think Nick and Nick and I had the players I think, at the time. 
Because when I go work with people, like I was working a lot with Peter Smith over at USC and yes. Pepperdine, he was at Pepperdine yes. for that. And I went to both schools and I, you know, brought my boards and he bought them. He was, he was the best. Peter was the best. He bought all my stuff. Yes. Yeah. And he bought tons of tennis. Yeah. And um, gee, I just remember more than half the guys on his team were from Spain and France and and, and that's the way it is nowadays. It seems like all the you know, we college kids. I, I never, I never, I never gave a scholarship to a foreign kid. Although, although I did call, uh, I did call Guillermo Vilas, a teammate of mine, was down in Buenos Buenos Aires working for Ford Motor Company, and said, so "This guy in my club is really good. You ought to talk to him." I called up, talked to Guillermo, and I said, "Geez, you know, you ever thought about college tennis?" He says, "Yeah, a little bit." He says. I said, what do you want to do when you get out of school? I said, well, if I don't play tennis, I want to be a, I want to be an attorney. But if I go to the United States, after about four years of college, then three years, of, two years of law school, down here, I can do it all at once <laughs> in law school. I can do it as an undergraduate, so to speak. And uh, so that, and then I then board was playing in Sacramento as a 16-year-old, and someone said, this guy's pretty good. I called up Sacramento, the tournament, and talked to Borg a little bit on the phone. Talked to Buster Matram once, but those guys I would have helped financially. But I figured that if I could get the top American, some of the top five juniors of the high school seniors, if I get some of the top five juniors, Jack, in the United States, and some of the second five juniors in the United States of the high school seniors, that that was enough to give me a good, fair chance of winning. And every once in a while, I get a third guy in the top 10 admitted as well. And that was that was really good. And that was about right. One out of the top five usually were admittable. So that, that worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one thing I, I noticed back in those days. It wasn't a bunch of foreigners. Today it is. Well, yeah, to a point. I, when, I was, when I was playing, we uh, would go down to Modesto where a guy named Fred Earl was the coach. And at Modesto JC. And we always play Modesto JC. We never beat them. But they had the whole Mexican Davis Cup team there, Olmedo, uh, ah, Alex, Olmedo, yeah, 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 the Lamets, uh, Contreras, and they would all go from there to USC. So he was a feeder school for USC. So USC was a lot of a lot of Mexican players at the time, Latin players. Uh, Corpus Christi has some. Um, but you got Charlie Passarell, wasn't he from Mexico as well? No, Charlie Puerto Rico. But they were living, he was Puerto Rico. And he went to UCLA and then Stanley came, his younger brother came to Stanford. Oh, okay. Why did I think he was from Mexico, huh? Um, that was, that's a, that really... was one of my first years of coaching. And I only did this once and I never did it again. I was telling Stanley, and Stanley was a good student. I said, Stanley, why don't you take Spanish one? And that was his native language, Spanish. Take Spanish one and you get one course you can get by pretty easily. Well, how you speak it provocally and how you how they want teacher in a class wants you to do it are two different things. He almost didn't pass the course. That was the last <laughs> time, the last time I ever gave any advice about taking a course. Well, kind of it probably hit you hard like that one thing I read in your book when you told the guy to serve to his forehand. Oh, geez. Michael Curtis, Michael Curtis, I would have felt the same ever. way as you did. I would have said, hey, that mea culpa, because but he he double he he had double psychology that guy because he knew you. <laughs> you read my that's, mind so well. It's so funny. That's yeah. funny. He, he had a big forehand. Great guy. 
Well, Dick, you, you've been just way more than gracious, and I, I can't I can't thank you enough. I, I will. Well, I've been honored, you. Jack. It's really great to oh. talk to you, and I, I love hearing these little. Uh, well, I love hearing more about you and what you've done. And uh, Dennis has been very, very lucky to have you. Well, as, as a member of this great fraternity, that's awfully nice of you to say. I appreciate that. I don't know. Like I said, I, I you're a legend. I, I don't think I'm. When a, I, grew up though, I don't Jack, think I'm in your league. When I grew up, I'm gonna get a hat just like that. Okay, well, tell me when your birthday is. Maybe I'll help you out. <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let you Last say week, one more thing. I just had it. <laughs> I'll let you say one more thing, just because of the heavy weekend I had. I told you about before we started this. Um, just last week, and I'm sure you feel this all the time, but is there anything you'd like to say about gratitude? Just that general. Well, yeah, I've been absolutely. thinking a lot about gratitude this weekend. No, you sure have. And for good cause too, Jack. Thank God that worked out. Yes. Thank but God. I, I think, I think, you know, I think that's really important that, that, and I think as a coach of anything, a sport, music, any organization, we have to be sure that the people we're working with, working with, uh, and in essence leading, understand by our example, how important it is to give back. Uh, nobody's an island. Uh, I, think, I think showing that you care is critical. That came across so loudly in the book, showing that you care about an individual and their families uh, is really influences how they respect you and how much they go to bat for you when you need them. That's not why you're doing it, but that's the result of it. I think that uh, just, I mean, when you go to a tournament, it's so easy to be mad because you lost or think you're above it all because you won, but to thank the umpire eye to eye, to thank the tournament director, to write a note to the tournament when you get home saying thank you, it was a great event for letting me play. Um, we did this for a team, we'd sit them down, we, we had a host family at a tournament or someone put on a dinner for us, something like that. We'd all sit down and write a note to the, the next day of practice to the people that hosted this uh, tournament, whether it be the Bill Kellogg at La Jolla or whatever, they'd all sit down and write a note. Um, just, just really, and we have to teach, we have to teach those people with whom we work or are associated with on a day-to-day -day basis that this is a part of life, that none of us got here by ourselves. And we have a responsibility to give back to this game of tennis in our case, or whatever it might be, the responsibility to give back and give of ourselves and, and to be sure people know how thankful we are for what they've done to make what we have done possible. And that's just, that's just a fact of life and too many times overlooked. I think it's really, really important to, to give back to the game itself. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I feel that way. And I, I do try well, to instill that in my yeah, you do every day. Well, I am, I'm, especially now, now that I've had that little brief scare, I'm going <laughs> to, after I told you, after you, I'm going after Fed now. <laughs> I'll just tell well, him. Be Rod, much, listen, he'll be a much had, better guest than I, but I, I, said, I hope I'll tell him him, I, he probably will. <laughs> I had Dick Gould on my show. Come on, you can do it, Roger. <laughs> Hey, you're a real mensch. I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks so gentleman. much, Jack. I appreciate it. I sure hope we get to talk again and do this again sometime. It would be a pleasure. Easy right. to do, and I'd love to do it.
Thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Good luck with all. All right. I'll talk to you.